Welcome back to Comic Book Workshop. It's a podcast about the craft of making comics. I'm Jason Hammonds, and I am not an expert. I'm just trying to learn all I can from those who do it best. On this episode, I chat with Michael Walsh. You'll know his work from books like Secret Avengers, The Vision, and the Black Hammer Justice League crossover, in addition to creator-owned works like his recent project Sleep Stories and his new image book, The Silver Coin. Michael and I dive deep into his creative process, what he learned from his years at Marvel, and his return to both the creator-owned space and the horror genre. Uh, It's an amazing conversation. I loved chatting with Michael. He's someone whose work I I really, really admire, um, and I am really excited uh, about the Silver Coin in particular because it's the first time, you know, in, in recent memory, the first time in a long time, from what I can tell, that... Uh, there has been an anthology series which has centered around uh, an artistic voice rather than a writer's voice, right? Like you see, um, you know, like like uh, W. Maxwell Prince does a lot of, you know, sort of anthology-based uh, series with a rotating cast of artists. Um, Alesh Kott has done that a lot, which, you know, Michael Walsh helped launch uh, uh, his book Zero, which was sort of in that format. But it's been quite a while since, you know, and honestly, I can't think of one from the top of my head, uh, since I've seen an artist do a book like this and bring in different writers voices to sort of, uh, uh, you know, play the whatever, you know, did like do that sort of tag team, you know, relay race kind of thing. Um, and so it's really awesome. And I'm really excited. He's got a star studded cast of writers, including uh, Chip Zdarsky, Kelly Thompson, Ed Brisson. Uh, uh, why am I blanking on uh, Jeff Lemire? Of course, uh, Jeff Lemire would be the other one. And then Michael's writing one himself. Um, I, I cannot wait for this series, uh, and so I hope you will all uh, go and check it out. It's As this episode comes out, that book comes out tomorrow. Um, so everyone rush out to your comic book stores, buy that first issue, and if you're digging it, make sure you put in those pre-orders for the upcoming issues because, uh, you know, there's there's always a big focus on pre-ordering that first issue. Uh, but for instance, with the Silver Coin, you know, uh, like series like this that kind of start out as a mini series the future of that series sort of depends on what those you know numbers are for the subsequent issues uh so if you're picking it up day and date you didn't pre-order it let your retailer know that you would like to uh to pick up the future issues um and that hopefully will mean good things for uh well really for us um you know so so that I'm really excited, and and we talk a lot about sort of, you know, how this project came together, um, what it's like as an artist sort of managing, you know, the production of of said book, right? Like, he's the artist and the colorist, and he's lettering it, uh, but he's also having to do all of the sort of, you know, production and stuff, you know, making sure that things are getting done on time, you know, kind of getting, like the ball moving and making, you know, arranging the creative team and figuring out schedules, all that kind of stuff. And so it's a really interesting project. And I think Michael had a lot of insight to share, um, not only about putting a project like this together, but also just, you know, working for the big two, like he has quite a lot and, 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 you know, sort of starting in creator owned, spending all that time in company owned comics, and then, you know, sort of returning back to the creator owned sphere now. Um, so it's a great chat. And, and if you're a process junkie, I guarantee you there'll be a lot to love here too, because, uh, he, he talks quite in depth about, uh, what his process is like so it's all around it's got something for everyone really um so if you don't stick around you are a moron um but honestly you know i i can i can see the retention rates you you people know what's up you know what's good and you listen uh it seems as though from what i see people are listening um, um through most of the episodes so uh that's that's a good sign it means you're you're hungry for whatever these experts are, are sharing with us um but before we get into the episode let's uh let's catch up a little bit um What's been on my mind this week? Uh, uh, oh, pfft. 
<laughs> this is something uh, that's definitely um, been on my mind. I've seen a lot of writers talking lately, uh, bemoaning the fact, you know, or, or, or the frustration that they can't find an artist to draw their project. Um, and I think there, there is this idea that is very prevalent among people who fancy themselves writers uh, that you can sort of just get by as a writer and that someone will want to read your scripts and draw it and that, you know, you'll, uh, you know, own your material and, and just be able to sort of pay like a, a very low page rate for an artist and get them to do it or whatever. Or you just feel constrained by the fact that you can't afford an artist um, and you think your book's never going to get done. Uh, and I understand that impulse. I really do. Here's my challenge to any writers who are listening uh, that do not, you know, either they don't think they're artists or they don't think they're good enough artists or they don't think that they can, you know, learn to draw to the quality that they uh, see fit. I personally, you know, I, I don't want to like antagonize anyone, but I personally think that that, that kind of excuse making is, is, um, is just that, is excuse making. Uh, and I challenge anyone who's listening who views themselves as just a writer even if you have rudimentary artistic skills, even if you are only capable of drawing a stick figure, if you are are a good enough writer, I think that it's very possible to write a story that can adapt itself to whatever your artistic level is, right? If the only thing you can draw is stick figures, you could probably write and figure out a comic that would work being drawn only with stick figures right xkcd has done it for for 10 years or however long they've been on the internet like it's perfectly possible to to write material that is suitable to your artistic ability i mean ryan north you know he had three pictures of a dinosaur for however much you know however many uh panels dinosaur comics is and you know made however many years of of you know weekly or day, I, can't, I don't even know how often he's putting those up but like of, of new content off of just those same panels, right? Like if you want to only be a writer, if you don't want to take the time to figure out, you know, to like learn the theory of drawing and all that stuff, write something that you are capable of producing and see where that gets you. It might not be whatever that huge epic is that you're trying to find an artist for or whatever, but Hey, it's building blocks. Like write some short stories that you are capable of achieving and then see if that can get you somewhere. Um, I just, I, 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 and if you're not going to do that, then learn to draw truly like, it, you know, if, 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 if this is something that you really want to do, I think that, um, any of us, and, and this is something that I had to come to terms with, right? Like I, for a very long time, fancied myself as just a writer. I didn't think my drawing skills were, were good enough to, you know, produce any pages or to, uh, to, to draw to the level that I would like. And, and truly, even still, I am not capable of drawing to the level where I could personally produce everything that I write, right? Like I work with a couple of artists who are very, very talented and definitely more capable than I am of producing those particular stories. But as a result, I started, you know, A, developing my drawing skills so that I could, you know, get to the point where I could make some some competent works that might not be quite as, uh, you know, ambitious visually as, as some of the other stories I was writing, you know, but but you know, to, 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 to bring up my drawing skills and to adapt my writing into something that I was capable of achieving. And in doing those two things, you are, you, you can actually start to build something for yourself rather than just write a bunch of scripts that no one, you know, will ever get their eyes on because generally speaking, people don't want to read scripts. They want to, they want to see comics. And in this industry, you know, gen like in this industry, in the, in the marketplace, the way it is today, people get work based on previous 
work that is that has you know been produced that has fully been made um it's it's very rare that you're gonna find someone who got into comics just by writing comic scripts uh uh and not getting any comics actually made through that um and also like don't put the burden on artists prices uh for their page rates it's a lot of work to draw pages uh and i think you'll also appreciate that if you start to try and draw some pages yourself it's a lot of work and uh it takes a lot of time it takes a hell of a lot more time than it's going to take you to write a script um and so you know i i I get real i like my 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 knives come out whenever i see writers talking about you know artists uh being too expensive and most of them don't do it publicly but they will do it um and I just, I, I don't like that. <laughs> it's, you know, people are trying to pay their bills and keep a roof over their head. And, and, you know, any artist who's going to work with you as a writer is, is doing you a favor is my personal belief. Um, they have so much more talent than any writer does. And they have so much more, you know, ability to tell a story than any writer does. And especially in this medium, uh, you can have comics without writers, but you cannot have comics without artists. Um, so I just, you know, value artists for what they are. And if, if, you know, working with an artist is not something that, that is, you know, able to happen for you right now, then see what you can do on your own. Try and challenge yourself to make something, however short or long, uh, that is within your reasonable ability to get done, right? You know, read some books on, you know, lettering or color theory or whatever it is that needs to sort of get you there. Um, but but try and try and get it done yourself, um, and that that will also show a lot, right? If you are able to write to that challenge, if you are able to sort of recognize your own artistic ability and go, okay, I am only capable of drawing stick figures. Here is a story exclusively featuring stick figures, and you are able to write a good story with that. That's more impressive than you know hiring an artist to draw pages personally. Um, and I, I I know a lot of editors feel that way, um, which is again like you know if you use Ryan North as an example there's a reason that guy has kind of been able to like do the books that are most interesting to him uh, because he had a portfolio that was wildly impressive when editors look at someone and go, Oh, they made however many years of content out of the same exact strip every single day, you know, like that that's eons more impressive than, than any book that, uh, that you can write and hire an artist for. So that's anyway, that's what's been grinding my gears lately. And I, I won't, uh, I won't take any more time on that, but if you're a writer, I just I challenge you to, to try and make something happen for yourself. Um, and without further ado, uh, uh, let's get on out of the catch-up, and I just want to remind you about my friends at Garm. Uh, that is the graphic artist resource merchant. Uh, they will provide you with uh, all the things you need to get your digital art to that next level and make it feel a bit more tangible. Um, Garm has amazing kits for Procreate, for Photoshop, uh, you know, that will allow you to, to uh, bring in a bit more of that you know, physical, tangible feeling to your digital art. Um, I use the rawhide kit a lot. It's my favorite one. I've talked about it before. Uh, it's got all sorts of amazing, you know, textural tools and, and brush tools, you know, stippling, things like that, that, that um, I personally find to be very appealing and very easy to use. Uh, so check them out. Go to garmcompany.com slash TMBC, and that'll give you 20% off anything that you order on the site. Um, again, that's garmcompany.com slash TMBC. And before we get into the interview, just wanted to remind you to follow the show at TMBC Workshop. You can follow me at Jason Halftones and Michael at Mr. Underscore Walsh. Um, if you're loving the show, you know, leave a rating or a review on iTunes or any other platform. Uh, and let's just, let's freaking get on into it. Let's talk to Michael Walsh. 
We are here with Michael Walsh. Michael, welcome to the show. Hello, Jason. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, it's it's wonderful to talk to you. I've definitely, uh, in terms of you know, sort of the the little board that I keep somewhere in my mind of of people that I want to talk to on workshop. You're you're definitely up there, and I'm so glad that this conversation is happening around a time that you're launching such a unique and interesting project. Um, obviously, we're we're talking about the silver coin, but uh, let let the listeners in on what the silver coin is. Okay, well, the silver coin is my uh, new image project. It's my return to creator owned after five or six years of working almost exclusively on work for hire at Marvel and DC and, and, and various other companies. So it's a big deal for me because it's my first creator owned in a long time. And then it's, it's a very unique mm-hmm. project in that it is a horror anthology style book where each issue stands alone with a new writer writing each issue. And I'm drawing the entire book and, uh, even though it is an anthology style and that you can read each issue individually, it is still Mm -hmm. its own self-contained and connected world. Um, So characters reappear from issue to issue. There's ongoing themes. There's kind of an ongoing mystery about the coin that, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of developed throughout, throughout the first few issues and um, hopefully comes to a satisfying conclusion with the fifth issue, which is the issue that I'm writing. Um, so it's it's going to be a super fun project. If you're a fan of horror, I would highly recommend mm-hmm. it. I think each issue kind of delves a little bit into different subgenres of horror as well. So there's kind of like issues that are more 90s slasher. And there's uh-huh. some issues that are kind of a more Twilight Zone thriller style. There's kind of a crime thriller. And there's even a, like a cyberpunk techno horror thing going on Ooh. in some of the issues and there's supernatural witch stuff so there's a kind of like it it's all over the spectrum of horror which is one of my favorite genres so it's just i kind of uh i was wrapping up on black hammer justice league which i i drew last year and uh worked on that with yeah. jeff lemire and i was thinking you know i had a, a few really cool opportunities after that and i was trying to figure out what i wanted to do with my career and where i wanted things to go and uh, i had been pitching a few different creator-owned books around that time. And I thought, you know mm-hmm. what, Let, let's um, kind of scale back because I was pitching long term ongoing series. And I said, let's let's do something smaller. Let's get a bunch of people involved, make this like an easy pickup for publishers, make it something that I would be excited to read as a consumer right. of the medium and, and get a, some of the most amazing talent that I've already worked with and that I already have a rapport with. So I just approached this group yeah. of writers who I'm a huge fan of and, and I'm friends with with them and uh and said hey would you guys be interested in doing this weird little thing that i have and they were all instantly kind of on board so it (laughs) it kind of just shot out from there and uh yeah it's kind of a dream project and i'm excited to see where it goes from here it's it's pretty incredible like i i i feel like it's this is a concept generally like you know not the specific story but the um, the idea of doing an artist centric anthology where sort of, you know, the writing, you know, team changes, but the artist stays the same is like, I feel like it's a vague idea that like comic book artists will often be like, oh man, wouldn't that be cool? But then no one, no one really actually does it, it yeah. right? Like, yeah, because it's, it's complicated. I'm sure like, you know, there's a lot of kind of minutia of like getting people together and stuff, but, but it's amazing that you were not only able to do it, but also you know, not for nothing, but it's a pretty stellar uh, uh, lineup of writers. I mean, you've got Chip Zdarsky, Kelly Thompson, Ed Brisson, Jeff Lemire, and then obviously writing one yourself. Like that is that is a, a pretty amazing uh, uh, group of heavy hitters. Uh, 
what was you know was, was there any sort of process of like okay the like why why specifically this group of writers for you um well they had been i i had just gotten off the book with jeff i really loved working with him um mm-hmm. i have been a long time friend with ed brisson he we did our first book that was published together with comeback at image, uh, almost eight right. years ago now. Um, wow. So yeah, he's, he's probably my, one of my best friends in, in comic books. And, uh, I talk mm-hmm. to him al- almost every day, even if briefly uh, just catching up on things and talking comics and process and stuff. Sure. And so he's been someone that, um, that I've been connected to for a long, long time. And I've been dying to work with him again because I really love Ed's writing style. I think it's just so character driven. And I think he's really Mm -hmm. good at doing unexpected plot stuff, but not like in these big bombastic ways in these kind of more subtle heart wrenching ways. And, uh, and yeah, I really wanted to see what he would do with a a full on straight up horror book. Um, And then Kelly, I worked on Hawkeye a bunch with Kelly. We became good friends and I love her writing. And with her, I was just so curious to see what she would do with horror because I hadn't right. read anything of hers that was was a full-on horror book before. And my prompt to all these writers was kind of um, do something that would scare you, you know? Like right. it was a very uh, open prompt. I just said, there's a, there's a coin and when people find it, awful, horrible things happen. These things can be supernatural. They don't have to be. I want to leave that open to you and, um, and and just do something awful and horrendous and terrifying and, uh, and make (laughs) it personal. And, um, and then I'll try and connect everything at the end of the day. And then what kind of, what kind of shook out was that after the first two scripts were done, I passed those scripts around with the rest of the group. And it actually ended up being kind of a more connected world than I even anticipated because the Uh writers kind of started riffing on each other. And I started including Easter eggs throughout the issues. So kind of what smart, what what started as the smaller self-contained thing has grown a lot as we worked on it, which is, it's really exciting and interesting to see how that can happen with a project like this. Um, right. And yeah, so and and then uh, going back to the writers, uh, Chip was someone who I worked on Spectacular Spider-Man with. And I thought that was uh, sure. that issue specifically of Spectacular Spider-Man was some of the strongest work that I've ever done as a creator. And I really uh-huh. just wanted to work with Chip more and to kind of develop more of a working relationship because I feel like we have a lot of the same sensibilities in storytelling. And I wanted to play with that sure. and, and also to see what he does with horror. And then Jeff is just kind of an amazing amazing creator and amazing guy to work with and uh and i wanted to do more with him as well so it was kind of easy you know i just picked a bunch of the recent people that i'd work with and who i thought Mm -hmm. were incredibly talented and i said hey you want to do this thing and everyone said yes so um it was (laughs) that's amazing yeah it was it was was great and i think it was luckily like just timing worked out everyone was available at that time you know um Mm which is is just luck and fortune on my part and then also it it got picked up right before uh right before covid really went into overdrive and lockdown started so um Uh luckily i wasn't working on something work for hire that got uh canned at that time or delayed i was able to just kind of plug away at silver coin and some of my other creator owned work that i'm doing right now and uh and develop that over the course of the last year or so that's amazing. That's I, I actually I didn't realize that that was one of the things that I was curious about is like if 
if COVID had uh, uh, an impact on like, like if COVID sort of led to this book happening, but it's interesting to know that it, that it was kind of in the works right before that. Yeah. Um, it was like right at the beginning of COVID I had started development on it and started putting the first issue together and the pitch together and approaching everyone. And then right. COVID hit and a creator on book like this is, can be kind of slow going just because um, sure. especially as the point man or point person on this project, usually usually the writer is kind of handling all the minutia of a book, but because yeah. I'm drawing and writing and coloring and hand lettering and then quarterbacking <laughs> yeah. and, and essentially show running it, um, uh-huh. there's about a million and one things that I have to do on this book every single day and all yeah. kinds of emails I'm sending and contracts I'm, I'm drafting. So it's, it's a ton, ton, ton of work. And I, it, at first it was very overwhelming, but I've kind of, gotten into a routine and flow of things and I had I, it's probably the the greatest learning experience that I've had in comics since I, I started sure. um, just just yeah. kind of getting back into this world and handling literally every single little piece of the puzzle um, but it's rewarding in a way and I think that my work on it uh, my work has grown significantly since starting on it which is really nice to see right. and, and really gratifying as a creator so you so you basically like you didn't bring in like an editor or project manager or anything you just basically went you know what i'm gonna handle this whole thing myself i don't know yeah i don't we didn't have a project manager on it i do have an editor for um he's like kind of more of a literary editor and he's uh handling a lot of the copywriting and making sure that all the all the dialogue and everything reads really well and and um has a nice polish to it which i think is very necessary Uh but yeah, project management, I just handled that all myself, um, especially because wow. I knew everybody and I knew that everybody involved in the project is super reliable. Um, right. You know, but then you don't take account into things like like variant cover artists and um, sure. finagling like everybody's percentage of the IP and the drafting. And <laughs> like, you know, it's just there's just a lot there happening at yeah. once to handle when you just want to try and draw and get the pages done. So it's <laughs> it was a, a bit slow going at the beginning for sure. What was what was the most unexpected challenge of putting this book together that you feel like uh, really taught you a lot just about sort of comics or your career or anything in general? Hmm. If there is anything specific. I mean, obviously, you know, you mentioned the IP stuff. You mentioned sort of like, you know, variant covers and stuff. I was just curious if any of those things like really stood out and like really forced you to kind of stretch and and uh, and grow in new ways. Um, I, I, there wasn't like anything specific that was really, Mm -hmm. um, really daunting, but I think it was almost like a million little bee stings, you know, like I was learning so many small things at once that it it's just been really overwhelming. And, um, like right around the time that I had silver coin picked up, I had, I had a few pitches out just because that's, that's what most creators do is, is, is they'll send a few pitches out because they just don't expect them all to go through. And then that way they're kind of hedging their bets so that they'll have something definitely lined up right. for the future. But I had kind of a few things get picked up at one time. And then, um, so I, I was not only juggling all of silver coin, but, uh, some other books that are unannounced right now as well. And, um, sure. it was just, yeah, it's been quite overwhelming juggling that many projects, especially like I said, <laughs> when you're quarterbacking a creator owned with yeah. five writers, uh, and multiple variant covers on each issue. But, um, yeah, like I said, incredibly rewarding, learned a lot about, Amazing. um, the craft, especially because I'm hand lettering it, which is something that I've only yeah. done before on like smaller projects and web comics. So, 
I had to learn a bunch of formatting stuff for that, which I wasn't really too familiar with. And hand lettering turned right. out to be quite a daunting task as well. Um, <laughs> it's much were harder. Were you using like an Ames guide or anything? Or how were you? No, how you I was it? like made a template and then just hand lettered it right in. Uh, I did it digitally in Photoshop right over Got, top okay. of the art. Um, so it's not on the original pages, but is hand lettered, uh, digitally. Sure. Sure. I figured that yeah. would be the best way to edit it. If we needed, you know, if there was any dialogue <laughs> edits down the road, cause there's always a final dialogue oh, yeah. pass. Um, and I'm mm-hmm. not going to go back in and white out on the page and rescan everything. Yeah. So I didn't want to have to do that. Um, I'd be way too terrified to, to <sighs> letter my own comic in ink. That just to me is like, hell no. Yeah, it's a lot. But, um, I think three issues in, I was like, I can't. I can't hand letter this anymore because it was too much time and it was, it's actually really hard on the wrist. I have a lot of wrist issues from, from drawing so much. Uh, and I'm like relatively young, so I'm trying to cut down on things. Yeah. It's like such a precise, like little thing that you have to like, you you end up straining your wrist so hard because it's just these tiny little fine lines that can't be very loose. Yeah. It's, there's not a lot of, um, fluidity to it. You have to be super focused and very strict with your, lines and and your um my wrist just the way that i bend it to hand letter it it, uh forces it into some positions that really strain the issues that i'm already having with my wrist so i was just coming into too much pain and i don't want to stress my wrist more than i have to at this point in my career and cause any kind of long-term issues so uh, i worked with uh, aditya who's uh one of the best letters and comics and he's made me a, a, a font of my hand lettering so i'm going to be starting to use that from issue four onward which is going to be a lifesaver a time saver and a risk <laughs> saver so i'm very excited about that but yeah i i, yeah. I mean if there's any lettering snobs in your in your listeners they probably know aditya um oh definitely he's, yeah he's amazing and uh, he's someone that i definitely want to work with in the future as well yeah, he's he's truly one of the best letters in comics. Definitely someone that I that I need to get on the show at some point soon. Yeah, um, I bet you he can and, talk craft for hours. <laughs> he definitely can. I've I've like had the briefest interactions with him before, and it's it's always fun hearing hearing his insight. But yeah, we had I mean like um a couple years ago probably at this point, but uh, we had Andrew McLean on the show, and like he was talking about that same sort of thing that when he started Headlopper, he was lettering you know on the board by hand and stuff like that, and mm-hmm. then at a certain point he was like, wait a minute, how many how many hours per week am I spending on lettering, you know, and like, what am I getting out of that versus mm-hmm. like could be drawing or just resting and not like straining my, my wrist so much. Like it's a lot quicker and easier to type the lines and sort of place them, you know, on the page than it is to like sit and strain over them for hours. So that's, I I'm personally just somewhat like hats off to anyone who's going to, you know, hand letter for, for their entire career. But man, I just, I could not do it. I think I think it comes down to balancing and measuring mm-hmm. um, what your time is worth, how much hand lettering the whole project would add to it. You know, I think mm-hmm. as a series that that Aditya's font looks, frankly, just as good as my hand lettering. So um, mm-hmm. I'm happy to go over that. But if I if I thought that I couldn't achieve that kind of unique uh, singular style of my hand lettering, I would maybe have stuck it out for the first five issues. Um, and then seeing, you know, seeing how I felt moving forward, if we even go longer or not, but we'll see. Yeah. I would Mm -hmm. love to do more silver coin in the future. Ooh. 
That's a, that's a nice little tease, and and we'll uh, we'll be tying back into to Silvercoin toward the end. I have more specific questions on that, but but for now, I want to you know rewind the clocks, turn back the uh, yeah. the, the time turner, or whatever people want to want to say. Uh, uh, when did you first start reading comics? I I've been reading comics for as long as I can remember. I uh, wow yeah, I grew up in the like I was born in '86, so I I was like an early '90s kid, and uh, we lived growing up pretty close to a comic store it was essentially down the street as a little kid and my dad would take me as a little kid we'd grab ninja turtles and superboy and batman stuff and he would read them to me so it's been yeah comics and making trips to local comic stores and browsing the racks that's been something i that's been in my life for as long as i can remember essentially wow that's 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 awesome do you remember who like who the first creator was whose name you would recognize on books I, I've had this question before and it's hard to remember specifically, but because I was always drawing and I was an artist, I would, I would gravitate towards artists. So uh-huh. being a nineties kid, you know, I, I've liked sure. Liefeld and McFarlane and, um, Jim Lee. Uh, and right. I, one of the earliest ones that I still really love, I remember is, uh, uh, John Romita Jr., finding his work in the early nineties. And it was so different than the other superhero stuff happening at the time, especially with the image Uh boom and, and, you know, the, the, the Rob Liefeld style of like really dynamic, but anatomically, uh, I'm trying to unsound. uh, Yeah. Insane. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, anatomically (laughs) insane stuff, which is great. And I love, I love Rob Liefeld's work. I do sincerely and without any kind of bullshit. Um, Totally. But I think that John Romita Jr. stuff just had a really different thing. His characters had such a weight to them. And I, mm-hmm. I mean, I couldn't um, verbalize that at the time. I was just a kid. Right. But there was something about the strength and the power of his characters that other stuff didn't have for me at the time. So that was when I really started getting into him. And I followed like a lot of his X-Men and Spider-Man stuff sure. and, Dare- and like even Daredevil at the time. I was going back and he had that uh, the Daredevil with Frank Miller um yeah, yeah that he did which was he's still so good like i have that close to my <laughs> close to my desk here somewhere so i can i can read through it and check out the art and maybe steal yeah. some good ideas from it from time to time but um yeah i still think uh john Romita jr is a little bit underrated i wish he was still colored yeah. and inked the way he was back in those days because i think that that would add a lot yep. uh to what he does now i don't think like the modern yep. forms of coloring really highlight the strengths of his work uh-huh <clears throat> um you you are you are like you are really like par- parroting everything that i keep like saying about ramita currently is like i i really love his work i do not think he's ever lost a step but you're right like they keep trying to render his work the way they would render you know like uh, uh steve mcniven or something you know what i mean like yeah. these really rendered airbrushed like it doesn't kind of like 3d yeah yeah it doesn't work you need to get his stuff kind of a little bit more flat you put someone yeah. on there that understands that stuff like Jordy belair or matt wilson yeah. you know that can do flat colors really well because it's a whole different kind of talent than highly rendered coloring um yeah, totally i actually thought you know what i thought looked really good more recently of john romita jr's stuff was that one shot that he did in the dark knight returns universe um it was the yeah. same guy that this the guy that inked it did the color work on it as well and i'm not too familiar with their work but it was it was totally on another level than a lot of the recent stuff that i've seen of his and it was a really interesting mm-hmm. style that i hadn't seen 
his work colored or inked like this before. So I recommend picking that up. I, I, I can't remember what yeah. exactly it was called. Um, excuse my, yeah, it was dark Knight The last crusade. The um, last crusade. Yeah. Uh, John Romita jr. Yeah. I'm trying to remember who it was that, that inked and colored him, but yeah, it, I agree. It looked really, really good. Mm-hmm. It was um, a cool one shot too. I think it stood alone really well in like its own yeah. kind of Batman universe. And yeah, I was, I was definitely a big fan of that stuff. Yeah. Oh, okay. It looks like, um, um, Let's see. The inker was Peter. Yeah. Inker and colorist Peter Stegerwald. Yeah. I'm not too familiar with his work either. Right. That's right. Yeah. But it was, it was, Uh, it was really cool work. I I remember really liking that, but, um, but yeah, so he was one of the first guys I really followed. I loved, you know, I, I was buying those first spawn action figures. I loved Todd McFarlane (laughs) a lot. And I had, uh, totally when he did the, the Spider-Man, um, relaunch with spider-man on mm-hmm. the front cover kind of hunched over and there's the webbing behind him and it was a lizard of course lizard was in that first issue i was huge on that issue uh <laughs> i think i like drew that cover a million times i That's so interesting i remember buying the death of superman stuff and i had all those all when they relaunched all the superman books with different supermans for each of them i loved those yeah. i still have a bunch of my drawings of those like uh, that would have been <laughs> early to mid 90s but yeah i was i was yeah. a 90s kid through and through with Hell nerdy yeah. 90s kid yeah that's so funny i because i i i don't think without this conversation i don't think i ever would have looked at your work and seen a ramita influence right a ramita jr influence like right. it's, they're very different stylistically but now that you're you're talking about that i can see some like similarities in in you know, like so, some little things that, that I feel like maybe and maybe they're just like totally, you know, unrelated. But like because he had he always had a very um, flexible style, particularly, mm-hmm. you know, like like uh, in the 90s and stuff like he was able to sort of like shift very well tonally and kind of adapt his work to to the book that he was on. Right. Like his Iron Man stuff versus his, you know, Daredevil stuff versus Spider-Man or whatever, like, yeah, all, you know, had their own very distinct tones. And I feel like that's something that I see in your work a lot particularly now obviously like doing all of this horror stuff is so much different from you know like uh uh, secret adventures or something you know like right um and that's it's really interesting noticing those things that aren't necessarily like super apparent but maybe and maybe are just like totally you know unrelated but that there is kind of like a a, a synchronicity to it yeah totally i I actually see a little bit of my my own or a little bit of john ramita's work john ramita jr's work in mine in in terms of the storytelling because i think he has a very Mm. precise and clear way of telling a story and there's a bit of like a a graphic design balance to the way that he lays out pages in a way that a lot of the other Mm. guys weren't doing at that time too and 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 like a lot of the influence of his on my work i think is subconscious i think my my more clear influences are guys like mignola and alex toth and david mazzicelli um Sure, sure. But uh, I definitely am influenced by him big time, and 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 some sometimes subconscious, sometimes not so much. But tell me, I actually want to talk about Toth a little bit. He's he's someone that I'm always uh, uh, super into, and and I, I find like his life and work both very fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, I the other day I was like rereading his Hot Wheels miniseries, right. uh, which I think is incredible. I love that book so much. Yeah. Um, but what to you could because he his work was so varied and and usually so brief what what are like some of the toth books that that have been really consistent like sources of inspiration for you for me my favorite toth book 
And it's like a super uh, random one. I keep this buff on my desk is Zorro. Oh <laughs> For the listeners, he pulled it up. Like he pull, didn't yeah, move no, an have, inch. I have. So my, uh, my, my desk where my Cintiq is at has like a bookshelf connected to it. And I've got a, a stack of books nice. in the shelf, literally to the left of my leg. And, uh, and I have this, <laughs> this Zorro collection that, that uh, it looks like it's from the eighties. I know that there is collections of this book that are uh uh-huh. yeah so this is this was 88 this is the first printed collection of uh this this form from eclipse books but it's oversized <laughs> so i really like it and oh. it's on this like it's like a thicker newsprint matte paper and uh uh-huh. this is one that i'm always going back and looking through because um in in zorro specifically toth is really playing up the noir elements and he's using right. a ton a ton of black spotting and uh, his character work is like really interesting in it because it's clearly inspired yeah. by the, the the actors that played the characters in the TV show that this is, I think, loosely based on the Disney TV show. Um, interesting. It's it's beautiful work. And he draws the, the hell out of horses constantly. He draws a lot of dynamic <laughs> sword fights in it. It's just like, like I'm not one for um, Personally, I'm not one for technical drawing as much, like cars yeah, and, and like planes and, and shit yeah, like that. Like, but uh, if someone's drawing a dude riding a horse fighting with a sword, I am 100% into that. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and I like the costumes in this a lot, too. All these yeah. um, Civil War era American military uniforms are so fun. They've got so many folds in them. And the goofy hats. Right. It's great. It's great. I love it. He does a lot of really fun hand lettering <laughs> in it. Um, yeah. For me, for my money, if you had to get one Toth book just uh, for the art alone would be Zorro, <laughs> which is crazy. Man, that's, that's wildly random. It is. But also I can see it, though. You know, I've I've, I've definitely flipped through that stuff. I haven't read it, um, but I flipped through it a lot. And it's really, really striking graphic work. There's so much like any he, he's already such an inky artist, but like there's so much inkiness yeah. to that to that stuff where it's like he's you know, you'll have so many panels that are like 60 percent ink. Yeah, just um, all black. Yeah totally just really graphic stuff because of i guess because of the nature of of that particular like the costume and sort of like the world and stuff that that yeah zoro draws from um that, that that's fascinating i i always love like delving into his stuff i need to find more of his like ec science fiction stuff that's kind of been my like thing that i really need to track down because it's so far outside of what yeah. most of his career is yeah um that i i, I want to see more of it he has such um, an eclectic career uh, and I, I don't i don't yeah. even own that much um from his his vast library of work i mean i've got right. you know well, it's uh, hard to find zorro i've got those those giant um genius illustrated books i've got of course uh, yeah bravo for adventure and the creepy presents oh. and like some random bibs and bobs here and there but it, it's kind of hard yeah. to track down some of his more obscure work yeah, because like it's all just like one random issue for some random EC book, and a lot of those EC books aren't really reprinted very well. Or like it'll be, you know, like he, his work was all over the map because apparently he was notoriously difficult and hated every editor. Yeah, uh, uh, and most writers, and so like I can understand. And and also it sounded like he just got bored. Like he would do like one or two issues of a thing, and then be like, okay, I need to like leave. I saw some issue that was like, or some interview with him where he said like if he had to do more than. Uh, like three issues of something he'd blow his brains out or something like that yeah i mean it's <laughs> it, like, very interesting it's a, a really interesting having the the collection for torpedo uh because right, he only yeah. did the first two 
short stories, and then it's all Jordi Bernay after that. And Jordy they yep. they complement each other well. But Jordi Bernay is, I think, a little bit. I'm not saying he's a better artist by than Alex Toth by any means, but I think that he suits the flavor of the book a little bit better. I think that his character, right. like he does a lot more cartooning and a lot yeah, of like lot really scratchier. interesting character work in it in a way that Toth doesn't do as much of. Um, right. I, there's like a drastic difference in the characters from, from, from when Toth drew them to when Bernay drew them. But he's a guy I'm also totally. a huge fan of, uh, Jordi Bernay's work, especially his torpedo stuff. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious did, for for Mignola. You mentioned Mignola as an influence, and 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 I think a lot of people who follow your work can can definitely see some of that in there. Uh, I have a weird fascination with with Cosmic Odyssey, in particular, but also just generally his big two work. Mm-hmm. Is that stuff that you that you tend to look at a lot, or do you kind of just prefer like creator owned, independent Mike Mignola when he sort of you know goes in his own direction, or is it a mix of both? I li- I like both. I do like um I like Gotham by Gaslight, of course. I think everybody oh, likes course. that book. I actually yeah. really like Mignola's work for hire that he did after he started Hellboy. So I really like his alien miniseries and I really mm. like his Dracula adaptation. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, I didn't I, even know he did an alien miniseries. Oh yeah. It's great. It's great. It's so good. Wow. His, his work on it's so interesting, but um, yeah, I, uh, I think uh, I, I, I think Mike really found his stride after Hellboy and I don't even think the first arc of Hellboy is really there in terms of the quality of where he ends up going I think he's still refining his style a little bit at the beginning and refining what he wanted Hellboy to be I mean you've got a co-writer on the first arc of Hellboy and there's narration and that stuff is just totally cut when you get around to the second series so um I think like yeah I think there's a I think Mignola's kind of still maybe at the best he's ever been although his work has changed a lot and evolved i think now it's kind of more poetic and abstract than it was before i think there's like if you go middle of the middle of of the oeuvre of hellboy work you get a really specific mignola where he's doing the poetic abstract stuff but he's also doing really clear character driven stories uh i think now it's Uh more about these um fairy tale poems almost when you read his hellboy stuff that he's drawing himself at least i think he he writes differently for other other artists yeah it's it's very interesting like you're saying it's it's looking at like if you were to put a drawing of hellboy like we all recognize it because we sort of know mignola and his work but like if you were to put a drawing of hellboy up from you know the first collection and from the last collection I think most people who didn't necessarily know the, you know, Mignola's work in general would not think that that was the same artist drawing. Both no, of them, 100%, you know? 100% they would think it was a different artist. Yeah, I totally agree. There's like you can there's like that Simonson flavor that he had sort of early on in Hellboy where it's like, you know, more dynamic and like kind of anatomical. And, and, and you know, there's a lot more of that, like, you know, sort of like the tapered lines for, you know, your forearms or whatever, or like the just the anatomically constructed stuff. And his later stuff is like very sort of like chunky and abstract like you're saying and the, you know the eye shapes get a lot different you know like the later on he goes and... i'm pretty sure in the first hellboy arc people still had shoulders but he just stopped <laughs> drawing shoulders at one point and now everyone just slopes down into their biceps from their neck and i love it i love That's, it i remember when i was like uh when i first got out of college and i was starting to try and um get some pitches picked up 
I had, uh, I had been living in Toronto for a long time. And then I moved back home because I was having trouble working two jobs and drawing comics for essentially for free because I was working on a bunch of pitches and just refining my portfolio. But I was very, very Mignola inspired at that time. And I was kind of drawing those sloped shoulders and I was (laughs) not even super conscious of the fact that these guys didn't have shoulders. And I remember my dad coming into the the room that I was using as my office at that time in my parents' house many, many years ago. And uh, looking over my shoulder and going, why Why does nobody have shoulders? Why aren't you drawing anybody with shoulders? They all look so wimpy. That's like what my dad was saying. <laughs> and I thought, well, I don't, I don't know. I, I never really thought about it. I was just trying to draw like my favorite artist, essentially. But I was obviously cribbing way too much from him at the time. Sure. But I think that's endemic of all young artists, especially yeah. that are very influenced by other comic book artists. You, they, you kind of take too much until you start finding your own way through things which is fine and and just mm-hmm. by drawing every day and by even by drawing like somebody else you will eventually find your own style whether you want to or not because your own your own mistakes creep into the work and that's kind of what makes your style right. is the way that you don't draw things right you know if i tried to draw totally. like maniola but i couldn't do one thing properly that one thing would would be what would actually make it my own work Right. It's like the theory of contrast when you're, you know, just composing a panel or anything like that is like if 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 an entire, you know, if a panel is mostly going to be black, right, like the thing that's white is standing out or vice versa. Like exactly. it's, it's almost the same thing where like if most of your style is, is Mignola inspired, then all people will notice are the things that are different. Yeah, um, that's really interesting. Uh, did, did you like what was the point that you decided to like that, that being a comic book artist was going to be uh, uh, your career? I. Like I like I said, I was drawing since I was a little kid. I always mm-hmm. loved comics and and I guess uh, nerd culture by association. Um, sure. I like I got into Magic the Gathering and like fantasy literature pretty hard when I was in um, in late elementary school. Um, uh-huh. But I in high school I kind of took a left turn and went hard into music and uh, skateboarding. Oh, and I was like, I, I didn't yeah. even, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not great under the confines of schooling. I don't think that I respond well <laughs> to authority. And I think when you sure. go to school for art, you have people that are authority figures that like to have that power. And if I didn't respect their work as an artist, it was very hard for me to listen to their opinions. I, I think that I've yeah. grown a lot as a human being since then. And I recognize that someone might have an eye for art that is stronger than their actual hand at drawing. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so when I was in high school, I was like, I don't, I don't, I didn't even, I didn't want to do school anymore. I hated school, but I was a literate, intelligent young man and I had talent for art and I wanted, I know, I mean, I knew I had to do something and my parents were like, you have to go to university. And uh, one of my TAs at the time said, well, there's this college in uh in toronto called the ontario college of art and design um it had be- recently become a university so they were offering degrees and uh and he was like i know that you want to go to toronto i know that you want to live to toronto and this would be a good place to go so that you can work on your art and then you'll be in the big city and maybe you know things will feel a little bit different so i went to the ontario college of art and design in toronto without any kind of focus or thought of what I was going to do as a career. And there was actually a comic book store on the same street as the college. So I started going to the comic store 
on lunches, you know, every Wednesday or two. Sure. And uh, it got me really back into comics in a way that I'd never actually been before. I like I'd always been into comics, but I wasn't I would say I was like a passive comics fan. I'd go into the store, I'd buy right. a few things. I wasn't like specifically following um runs of anything. I had a ton of comics, but it was just like it was more of an interest and not an obsession. And I think during college, right. I became a little bit obsessed with it. And I was starting to see art that really, really appealed to me in a way that it hadn't in a long time. And like late high school is when I found Hellboy. And I started reading like Scott Pilgrim and a lot more indie stuff at that time as well yeah. that was coming out. So I think in in high in college, when I started uh, going to the shops and following comics a lot more again, I decided, you know, maybe maybe this could be a career, you know, this could be a thing that I, that I do and make money at and, and, and build a future with. And so right. I tried to push comics in school. And at that time at OCAD, um, there wasn't really a dedicated program towards um, comic book work. There was a sequential narrative sure. class that was taught by somebody that didn't do comics. And then I wanted to do a comic book for my thesis and they said, no, um, so I graduated essentially without a comic book portfolio and I thought, and I started working in graphic design. I was doing stuff for a company that developed peripheral video game hardware for the switch. So I was like doing graphic Got design it. on like really goofy looking, uh, or not, not switch. It would have been the Wii at the time uh, on uh, Nintendo okay, Wii yeah, games. And I was like, this is yeah. brutal. I would rather work in. Personally, I would have rather worked retail or like a factory than have sure. done that because I, I just felt like it was such a misuse of my time and energy for what I was doing. And I, right. I, I'm sure some people love that, but it just was making me crazy. Um, yeah. So I quit like working within the art industry and just started working at a thrift store and then developing my comic stuff because I was like, I know I want to do art and this is the only thing that I enjoy really of art anymore of making because I think yeah. for me what works is telling a story visually. That's what yeah. always appealed to me. And I've never been someone that really just draws a lot without a purpose, you know, like a fine painter sure. or somebody who has a sketchbook and is drawing all the time. I would always mm. be drawing and creating stories. Even from a young age, I'd be drawing my own comics. I wouldn't be just drawing pictures of characters, you know, like I, I'm, I've never right. been a huge pinup guy. I've been somebody that wants to tell a story with my art. So totally. I think that when I realized that it was kind of a breakthrough for me and I thought I'm going to put all of my time and effort into being a comic book artist and, and writing and drawing my own work. And I, I just wasn't getting any headway with my writing at that time. I think it's a lot easier sure. to be seen as an artist. Um, and I met Ed Brisson uh, because I had hired him to, letter a pitch that i was drawing and he mm -hmm. said i will letter your pitch for free if you draw one of my mini comics called murder book so he lettered a pitch i drew wow. a murder book and then we decided <laughs> we'd start pitching some books together to try and get something done by image and uh right. and yeah and then we we did a bunch of pitches i did like six pitches that year with all different people wow. and uh and then eventually one of them one of them image picked up which was come back and then i now, now tell me about when when you're making those pitches, um, how, like how many how many pages are you putting into the the pitch document? We were doing the um, prototypical image submission guideline pitches, so it would be a cover, five pages, uh, and uh, like a one sheet with the with the plot, characters, 
long-term outline. And then I think I'd had this full script for the first issue as well. I'm, 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 wow. I'll have to ask him, but I can't, I can't remember exactly if he had the full script, but he, he would have had a, a big chunk of the script, if not the full script for the first issue. Sure. So, yeah. And, and were the, were these fully just cold submissions or did you guys like have, have an in with image or any other publishers or was it just like serious, like sending it into the slush pile over and over? Yeah. At the beginning we were sending it into the slush pile like crazy. And uh, Ed had already uh, some comic book connections within the industry. He had been around for a little while and he had his own publisher for for a while called New Reliable Press. And you can actually, like a a few people started there that are bigger names now. I know he did Simon Roy's first book with New Reliable Press. Um, Oh, wow. But yeah, so he knew a few people, but there wasn't really, we didn't have ins with publishers. Um, I think Mm -hmm. he had been introduced to Jim Valentino at Image Shadowline at a convention and gave him uh, like an ash can pitch. And I think that was where things kind of finally, we finally made some headway with that. Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it wasn't, it does. uh, does... Unfortunately, we didn't have any nepotism going on for us. (laughs) Or it might've happened. (laughs) <clears throat> sure yeah but it, it is kind of almost like proof positive of of you know some of the theories of like just sort of putting your head down and putting the work in you yeah. know and that like eventually it'll come through right like some people have sort of a head start or whatever or leg up on 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 you know starting their career but like ultimately if you're putting the work in and like getting those pages out and stuff like one way or another that's going to come to roost whether it's you know putting those books out and like kickstarting something or now obviously like with social media developing sort of an audience that way web comics whatever like that that ultimately you know the thing that that everyone preaches over and over of like just put in the work and get some pages done like uh ends up you know sort of getting you in the right direction obviously with some skill and in and and pitching and like you know figuring out the right thing to do with those pages but like you know the most important thing is the work it seems this may sound controversial but Mm. as an artist if your work is good Mm. enough and you're putting yourself out there you'll start getting work and that sounds very reductive, but I think that a lot of people that in on the art side of the spectrum aren't getting work. Mm-hmm. Um, it like frankly, there there's a lot of people that aren't ready that think they are, and editors can right. see see that right away. Um, but like, it's it's hard. It's hard because this it, it's such a different time than it was when I was starting to get into the industry eight or nine years ago, I think social media has changed so much since then. At that time, there wasn't these giant um, Twitter and Instagram followings that people had that were Mm -hmm. uh, giving them a huge platform for their voice and for their art. There was none of that was really happening in the same way. So it was all this kind of word of mouth and sending stuff to editors and bringing stuff to conventions. I think it's a lot easier to be seen now but at the same time there's Mm. way more people that have access to these platforms that are able to just post online like you there wasn't as many artists going to conventions and going and meeting people than there are people Mm. just posting shit to twitter and instagram and and tumblr if tumblr is even still a thing i don't even know i I got off tumblr a while ago (laughs) sure sure no that, that makes a lot of sense yeah it's it's and it's one of those things where i you know i think people talk a lot about um, you know, how, like how many aspiring creators there are now versus, versus how there used to be or how many there used to be. But I also do think like, you know, and, and people will look at just the direct market as, as trying to sort of like talk about the industry at large. But I think that the amount of avenues that are now open 
you know, and, and kind of democratized for people to make their comics in whatever way they want mm-hmm. is incredible, right? Like the, the amount of web comic platforms out there that are actually proving to be viable income streams um, um, options yeah. for people yeah right like yeah and income streams and like you know and obviously like not everyone making a webcomic is making a living off of it but a lot of people are right mm-hmm. as many as are making you know money self-publishing right like um and then kickstarter of course like being a, a big factor in that and even like patreon and whatever like i you know i could count on i'd run out of fingers if i tried to count the amount of friends i have who make full income streams just based off of like a comics distribution platform that is not the direct market yes um and I think that that's really, you know, it's like, it's like, sure, there's, there's a, a swath of creators coming in, but I do also think that generally there's just a larger readership, yes. particularly in North America than there has been, you know, probably since like the silver age of comics or something, you know, like, um, yeah, I totally agree. And so it's, yeah. it's interesting because there's more, I would say there's probably more people re- actually reading comic books and sequential stories now more than more than the 90s but like it, the speculator market isn't the same so books just don't totally. sell the same and floppies don't sell the same i think that the the audience is just way more varied and yeah uh and that means that you can do more different kinds of books as well it's just like i don't know I, I'll, be, I'll be curious to see what happens with the direct market over the next few years i think seeing mm-hmm. um the recent move to uh penguin random house um, yep. is indicative of some big changes coming down the road. And I'll be curious to see yeah. what that means for the future. But uh, all I, I mean, I, I, I hate thinking about the business aspect of comics, but I think <laughs> inevitably, if you want to have a long-term career, it's stuff that you need to be considerate of. Uh, totally. But I just want to keep making cool books for an audience of people that support me well enough to just you know pay my bills and get food that's all i need as if i can keep making comics i'll be happy um but yeah i think there's going to be a lot of changes and i think that uh creators are going to need to adapt to the changes within the industry as well totally yeah my my biggest hope is i would love to see uh comics showing up at gas stations and general stores again like that that to me is like the biggest hope of like the the direct market shifting so much i hope so that that's one of my great memories of of being a kid reading comics as well is like aside from buying at the local comic store i'd be sitting in the back of a of a cart at the supermarket a shopping cart and i'd be reading comics from the spinner racks at the supermarket you know and i don't think that's Mm -hmm. a thing that even happens anymore uh, no, I, not I, with diamond. Yeah, not with diamond. That's how I got into Bone was um, on the spinner oh, yeah. racks. They had this little magazine called Disney Adventures, and they were serializing right. Bone in the back. So um, I was reading uh, that as it came out in that format as a kid, and I'm a lifelong fan of Bone now. But it's totally it's sad that kids aren't really getting exposed to it that way. And and hopefully, yeah, yep. maybe maybe now with the move to Penguin Random House, we'll be seeing a lot more comics in. Um, currently unconventional spaces totally yeah that's that's my biggest hope is like it just feels like the 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 uh, the market has limited itself so much for so long and only gone specifically to where people who already read comics are yeah um and that's like you know inhibiting which is like i think also what gave way to the growth of web comics and other things like that because a lot of people are just like well i don't that's not my thing so i'm gonna you know like 
if comics come to me where I'm at, then then I'll check them out. But I'm not going to go to a you know comic book shop. Yeah. But anyway, it's like it's like um, trying to give a hamburger to somebody that's already eating a steak. Maybe give the hamburger to somebody who doesn't have any food on their plate right now. You know, that's the weirdest 100%. analogy ever. But but that it makes perfect sense. Honestly, <laughs> yeah. I, I I do think it's a bizarre analogy, but it makes perfect sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, I love that. Uh, so, so in talking about comeback, uh, tell me about sort of like that, that being, you know, kind of like the first, you know, picked up published, like, you know, uh, complete series that you worked on. What were some of the lessons that you took away from, from making that book that, that sort of helped inform the next, uh, uh, books that you would make and the next work you'd do? Well, I think you're that almost every creator's first, um, multi-issue book is a mm-hmm. huge learning experience. And I think, you know, I can, I can say or discuss the things that I, I learned specifically, probably, you know, I learned about building a routine. I learned how to, um, work in steps and phases to, Mm. to, to group things together so that I would work at a better pace instead of, you know, penciling and then inking in the same day. I learned that if I penciled all day for a few days in a row and then ink those pages, I'd probably get one more page done that week. So I learned how to speed up my pace. I learned a lot of shortcuts because just because you (laughs) have to. And I think that the lessons that everybody learns on their own first time that they're working monthly for more than one issue is going to be a little bit different. But I think the point of what you're going to learn is how to work quickly, how to build routine, um, how to find shortcuts within your own style that don't hamper the artistic merit of the work, but still make Mm. you a faster artist. I think you learn about uh, the way that you uh, interact with editors and with coworkers, the way that you work with scripts um, and the way that you work with different writers as an artist um, or different artists as a writer. You know, I think that a lot of the lessons in comics are learned the hard way by failing <laughs> or <laughs> sure. fucking up. And like, I see kids all the time that I've done portfolio reviews for a few years ago that are getting their first work and they were like, they'll be like, Oh yeah, you said this, but it didn't really mean anything until I actually screwed it up. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or like, I can say you need to trap your pages all day long or it might print weird, but you know, they, somebody won't remember that until they don't trap their page and then it prints fucked up, you know, excuse my language. I don't know right. what, what the, no, no, you're fine. I, I'm you, no, 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 uh, censors. Okay. Here. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, <clears throat> I think the best thing going into your first book would be to make sure that you are ready to work an actual full-time or more than full-time schedule. And the best way to do that mm-hmm. is to, work the same hours every day and to take breaks and to take time for yourself, but to still, um, find a way to work that is incredibly fruitful and productive. Um, right. Cause it's just, I think that people just don't, I can say, you know, comics is a lot of work working on monthlies is a lot of work, but nobody understands yeah. that until they're actually doing it. You know, it's so hard right. to, it's hard to grasp. <clears throat> and, sure. you know, I think a lot of people that are young and, um, getting into the industry for the first time are naive a little bit. And I think that mm-hmm. it's easy to just be like, nah, it won't be like that for me. I'm good. And I'm a hard worker. <laughs> It'll be easy, but it's not, it's no matter how, how strong of a talent you are, no matter how good of an artist you are, it's not easy at the beginning. And it never, it's never easy. Right. It's not an, it's, it's not, uh, 
I guess no artistic industry is easy, but the way that comics come out on a factory line is very hard yeah. on on an artist in terms of production. It's, yeah, it's like it's like kind of it seems to me as though uh, it's sort of just running from a train while having to stay on the tracks. Yeah, you know, like it's like you can't run to the side. You just have to keep running forward and holding on to both trains, and they're moving at different <laughs> speeds, but you're running your legs as fast as they can go to try and keep up with both of them. <laughs> It's a lot. It's a lot. I it's, don't know what, where these analogies are coming from. These, <laughs> I mean, honestly, you're you're really you're you're cranking out analogies uh, uh, at a at a clip that I think is astonishing. Um, <laughs> what? So so early on, you know, and and maybe you know before comeback or or whenever, like, are you doing any portfolio reviews of of your own work with people in those times to try and improve, or is it kind of all just self directed or both? No, I was going to conventions and I was bringing my my portfolios to artists and to editors and asking for re- reviews, which I I found uh, very very beneficial, and I highly recommend that to all all artists, young or old, that mm-hmm. want to work in comics, is to go to go to conventions and have your portfolio reviewed by professionals and editors if they have the time. Like if yeah. you if if you go to Artist Alley, there's just lines and lines of artists out there you know, yeah. signing their books, doing commissions and stuff. And if you go up to an artist and ask nicely and say, Hey, you know, I'm trying to get work. I would really, I really enjoy your work for these reasons. And I, and I would really value your an opinion on my portfolio and, you know, sit down with them. They'll probably invite you behind the desk to sit down and take a look through your portfolio. Um, what was really valuable to me was that I went to a convention and I uh, was going through the artist trying to get stuff reviewed in Toronto. And I had met, uh, that's how I met Marcus Toe and Francis Manipool. Oh, yeah. Um, Raid guys. Artists who have been around a little bit longer than me. They were young guys at the time and they reviewed my portfolio for me. And they said, you know, you've got some really strong stuff. They gave me some some pointers and said, mm-hmm. you know, we do this uh, drink and draw group. Why don't you come out? There's a bunch of uh, younger artists like yourself, like trying to find their way within the industry. So I started going to these drink and draws and it was really nice to build relationships with peers and to kind of bounce off of each other and learn from each other because I find sometimes you learn a lot from your peers uh, in a way that you don't learn from from mentors or from teachers you kind of push each other to get better so um, I think I think that was a really valuable for thing for me at that time and then I was also getting reviews from editors at conventions so I was bringing my portfolio to conventions I remember one of my first portfolio reviews was from Steve Wacker who at the time Uh was editing daredevil and he's gone on to work in the uh film and animation side of of disney right now i believe but uh, at the time he was like one of the big star editors at marvel and and i really enjoyed all the books that he was producing so i was so excited to get a a review from him and he was incredibly generous and and his points of things that i needed to work on were really really strong Uh, you know it's funny because the first thing he opened my portfolio and he's like oh i don't see any feet here there's no feet anywhere you can you (laughs) And he was making a joke of it, but it was true. There was actually, I realized it wasn't that I couldn't draw feet, but I was doing uh-huh. way too many mid shots and I wasn't panning out enough. And mm. that was something that other people hadn't picked up on, something that I wasn't being conscious of enough at the time. But right. he had a bunch of really solid notes that were things that I took forward and, and just made my work better. So I, I highly recommend, I mean, we're in, we're in COVID days right now. So you're not getting to get out to a convention at any time. Sure. But, I mean, you can always reach out to artists on Twitter or Instagram 
at, right. through social media and say, Hey, I've put together a portfolio and I would love for you to have a look at it. If you have the time, um, I would really appreciate it. And, and my recommendation is for a portfolio for a comic book artist is to have 10 to 15 pages. Um, yeah. you want to have a few pages of more talking, talking heads type of work. And I'm t- specifically if, if you're looking to try and get work at, at DC or Marvel, more superhero action centric work, you'll want to have a few pages with action in them showing how you right. can, uh, draw fights and lay out action in a dynamic and readable way. You want to show that you can draw cities, you can draw, uh, nature. Um, you kind of mm. just want to show a really wide variety of things in your portfolio, but you also don't want to overdo it. So you only want like 10 to 15 pages. And if you can host sure. those on a site, that's your own site, your name.com or your name art.com portfolio, mm-hmm. whatever the hell, uh, that shows a little bit of, um, wherewithal from the artists that they are able to build a portfolio, build a a audience and, and host their stuff online that they've got a little bit of drive going, you know, which is a valuable thing to editors. Um, yeah, totally. But yeah, yeah. I definitely think that, that any artist should be out there trying to better themselves by talking to working professionals and getting them to put some eyes on their work. Sure. Sure. Um, so as you're as you're working, you know, in company owned comics and and uh, uh, you know Marvel and obviously some some other publishers, what to you starts to to become the biggest challenge of doing company owned work? I think that the company owned work thing is interesting because for me personally, I didn't really have like I, I see artists that move back into creator owned are like I'll never work for Marvel DC again, but I really had a great time working at Marvel and DC. And mm-hmm. I had really great relationships with editorial. Of course, there's hiccups here and there, as there are with every job. It's not perfect all the time. Right. There are mistakes that are made on my part, on someone else's part, on editorial's part. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just the nature of the thing. But nothing was ever maliciously really done to me at any of those companies. Um, sure. I, I had a great, great relationship with everybody. I think that like part of the difficulty is not knowing what's going to come next sometimes because there's so few opportunities for ongoing books anymore. I think me getting in at Marvel and doing 15 issues consecutively of secret Avengers is a a complete anomaly in the way that things go now. Uh, Most people, most artists go into Marvel and do a short story and then maybe do a fill in issue of a thing. And then, um, do a fill in issue of a thing and then maybe get a mini series. But me going on, into Marvel and just jumping into an ongoing was like just really odd <clears throat> at that time. Sure, and it, yeah. I don't think it was planned as an ongoing, but the first few issues did really well. So they, they pushed it in that direction. Um, <laughs> and like, yeah. I was somewhat proven because I had done five issues of comeback on time. And then I did five issues of X-Files on time. And I launched zero yeah. with Alish at image as well during that time. So I yeah. think it was clear that I could hit my deadlines and that I had a somewhat, consistent art um (laughs) as consistent as you can be early in your career uh so at least they they could bank on on me hitting my deadlines with consistent style um right right. yeah it's funny because i think my marvel career went a little bit in reverse i started on an ongoing and then i did a mini and then i started doing some fill-ins and i don't think uh, I think like the fill-ins that I did were high profile fill-ins. You know, I went yeah. on, I, I did fill-ins on books that were all Eisner award nominated or winning books. Mm-hmm. So they, yeah, it like isn't like they were Hawkeye these like, yeah, yeah uh, jobber fill-ins really. 
but um right. and then i did this the star wars last jedi project which was incredibly difficult um just from sure. a storytelling perspective from likeness perspective from you know how much you had to fit in in terms of beats per page it was just it was daunting and and incredibly incredibly mm-hmm. difficult uh, that was one of the pro- probably the most difficult book i did at marvel um wow. but yeah so i i i kind of felt a bit like i was stagnating a little bit at marvel um mm. that was personally not on not on their end but i was just like i wasn't seeing i wasn't getting onto the books that i really wanted to be drawing anymore which was starting right. to frustrate me a little bit and then i was offered um i was offered black hammer justice league at kind of the perfect time and right. uh and after i started doing that it made me really want to get back into creator own seeing how successful Jeff had been with his black hammer world and that he kind of built this entire world from the ground up and was able to do something that, you know, hasn't been done in a long time working on Mm -hmm. a book like that, where it was like half work for hire, half creator owned (laughs) with someone's completely unique vision. It was, um, it was kind of a kick in the, in the butt to, to start doing things that I was really excited about. And not saying I wasn't excited about my Marvel work, but there's a, a different attachment when you're doing a creator own thing, you know, like, yeah, I, I kind of feel, oh my God, I was, I was going to use another analogy, but I, I guess I will. <laughs> this is going to be the theme of this, yeah. this podcast. I, it's the difference between <laughs> like babysitting and having your own baby. When you're, right. when you're working on a book at Marvel, you're babysitting somebody else's creations. And obviously you care about the baby and you're not going to yeah. like, give it food that's going to harm it and you're not going to try sure. and do a bad job but when it's your own baby it's a totally different thing like you're totally connected to your own creator own books you love the characters in a way that is kind of indescribable really especially once they get off the ground and they become a thing that other people have read then they're not really yours anymore they're this creation that exists in the world that has has a life of its own at that point and other people are invested in it as well so it's it's this amazing feeling that is somewhat indescribable until you actually do it um but i i I think it was just time for me to do that again i was feeling um tired and i wasn't excited i want to be excited about things that i'm working on and uh and yeah i'm i'm absolutely excited about everything that i've got on my docket right now and it's also kind of just like going back to creator own it has gotten me excited to do work for hire again because now sure, I have yeah. all these new things that I've learned that I'll be bringing to the table the next time that I do work for hire. And I think yeah. that I'll have um, a new perspective and, and I will have learned some new tricks and my art will only be better for it. Uh, yeah, no, that makes total sense. And I, that is one thing I, I found Justice League um, Black Hammer particularly interesting because that to me, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed to me like the first time, at the very least, the first time in a while that you'd colored your own work. Um yeah, I so I was. It's funny. I was just talking to um, a colleague about this the other day because they were considering drawing something or coloring something. Sorry, that they're drawing. They're, they they've mm-hmm. been known primarily as a, a line artist, and now they're thinking right. about coloring more of their own work. And um, yeah, I I started small with coloring. So I I colored a short story that I wrote and drew for Dark Horse Presents called King Warlock and Bluebird. And Mm. I colored uh, a short story that I wrote and penciled with Dylan Burnett inked uh, for the Dark Souls anthology. And then um, so I I drew and colored a few things and then covers, of course, for my own work. And I was just finding more and more that I was doing a lot of drawing in the coloring 
And um, I was kind of refining in a final phase of refinement. And I was more happy with the art that I colored of myself than I was of anything that other people were coloring. And the funny thing is that like, especially at that time, I wasn't even a great colorist, but I think that that added stage of refinement was really helping me find a place with my art that I was happy with. And so Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, I will do the Black Hammer Justice League and I would like to color it myself because it would be the first long form thing, multi-issue project that I'd colored. Uh, I'd also colored um, my my Star Wars annual and my Jim Henson's one shot. So I had enough experience coloring that I knew that I could do it, that I knew that the pace that I would work at would be sustainable. Uh-huh. And even even with that experience, I, within the first 10 pages of coloring Black Hammer Justice League, I had a crazy panic attack. Like, <laughs> I can't do this. I'm not good enough oh at coloring. God. I had some intense imposter syndrome. And sure. uh, and then I reached out to Matt Wilson and I was like, Matt, I, I had worked with Matt quite, quite a bit. And I think he's probably mm-hmm. one of the best colorists in comics aside totally you know beside jordy and dave stewart and matt hollingsworth like he's up there he's yeah. in the upper echelon top tier absolutely and i was like matt help me save me and he just gave me a few little pointers and and i was able to kind of like adjust and find a style that i was happy with and then from then on i honestly don't know if i would go back to having someone color me the only way it would be is if i was under a complete deadline crunch but the right. way that i work now is that i leave my inks a little bit more open than I think other people do. And then I, and I, I ink a little bit more while I'm coloring because I find things that I want to do while I'm experimenting with the colors on almost every page. So it's become a really, really uh, integral part of the, the art process for me. And uh, it it makes it, I, it takes me longer now to do art than it ever has before, but I'm much more happy with my output than I ever was in the past. And it's kind of brought um, a little bit of comfort, and uh, I can sleep easier after I see the mm-hmm. the pages because I find I've got that one last edit. I would always see books on <laughs> the stands of that I drew that I was like, ah, oh, I just wish I fixed that one little thing, and it would really nag at me. But when right. I color my own work, I have the opportunity to fix that one little thing one last time. That makes total sense. And and are you because you talk about you know doing a little extra inking while you're coloring? Are you inking digitally anyway, or are you inking like on the board first and then? going into color right now i'm about half and half i would say half of the issue i will ink traditionally like pages that i'm really excited to draw i'll still ink Uh traditionally but if there's like a series of pages of talking heads or that is Mm -hmm. a little bit more monotonous to draw a lot of times i'll draw those digitally i've become a lot faster digitally and i and i'm able to use a lot of the tricks that i use when inking traditionally now in digital so um it's depending on what my deadline's like it's hard for me to justify the extra time to ju- to to uh to draw and ink traditionally unless i'm excited to draw the page so right right you have to still you- i find you have to get excited to draw some pages or it's not worth it sure yeah that makes total sense and i'm you know like also you know not for nothing but uh uh as a you know comic book artist you're you're the the usefulness of having any extra revenue stream open yes. to you is certainly not to be denied like the ability to send to save or to sell a physical page yeah the supplementary uh, which, income of of selling original art is um pretty important to my lifestyle right. and even though i've cut back as i've cut back and i don't have as many pages to sell the cost of selling my page or the cost of buying my pages has gone up so i probably make sure. more money selling original art now even though i'm producing less original pages 
Totally. I and I will say actually, uh, uh, I in in uh, let's see, before like a year ago, I was um, living with my friend Scott Corelli. We were roommates, and he actually had in our apartment, in our kitchen, he had one of your original pages hanging up of uh, a guy. I can't remember which book it's from, but of a guy in a hotel room eating a hamburger. Um, which was always like really, really nice, uh, uh, to- you know, mood setting for, for sitting down to eat. Um, yeah, and so it was really interesting. Comeback. I was looking at that page. I remember from that comeback, page. Right. And yes, I remember Scott. I hope he's doing well. He's doing, he's doing very well. Um, um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's interesting seeing like, uh, uh, it was always like fun kind of like seeing that page and it would always like mm-hmm. anytime I would look at it, it would get me stoked to eat something, but also like like oh yeah i need to i need to draw something uh Uh, (laughs) it's like a double reminder that's an underrated thing that artists love to draw is food i love drawing food i think a lot of artists really enjoy drawing food for whatever reason i don't know (laughs) i think because everyone everyone enjoys eating everyone gets hungry and gets a plate of food in front of them they're like excited to eat it and it and it's a universal experience and i think that universal experiences are fun to draw and there's sure. something like very visceral about like a sloppy, goopy hamburger. And that's <laughs> the kind of stuff that I love drawing that when when you draw it, someone looks at it and they know exactly the feeling of eating that thing or holding that thing in your hands. You know, that's right. some of the stuff that I really enjoy about about creating <laughs> art. That's so amazing. That's that's yeah. a really that's a really interesting way of looking at it. But it totally makes sense. It's it's a very universally relatable thing that you can fully like when seeing it, you can you can kind of feel what that experience is. Exactly. And, that, um, and you know what, that's why I enjoy horror so much drawing horror is that like, right, if you scare somebody, you're doing exactly what you wanted to do, right? You, yeah, there, there is, a, you know, I think that there's art is for the most part, subjective. And some people enjoy it. Some people don't. But with horror, you're trying to do a very specific thing. So there's like a a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Did you find it scary? Mm -hmm. Yes, I succeeded. Boom. I won. Yeah. Like I did what I wanted to do. I can be happy with my art. And I I don't know if there's very many genres that have that instant gratification of knowing that you did exactly what you were trying to do. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I kind of want to talk about that because horror is something you know, that, that before, uh, uh, launching, you know, sleep stories and the silver coin, I don't necessarily think that you were sort of known as a horror creator. What was the impetus for kind of like shifting in that direction and and going full bore into, into these two horror projects? Well, it's funny because that was when I started pitching my own books, I wanted to be a horror artist. Like I had mentioned previously, Mignola was one of my biggest influences. I wanted to do right. horror action stuff. I wanted to do creature features. And uh, when I started working with Ed, we did that mm-hmm. noir crime. And then I did X-Files, which was horror. So technically yeah. speaking, you know, I started off as a horror noir artist. I was really in the vein of Sean Phillips or sure. um, Chris Somni or something like that, like early Somni stuff. Um and then when we when I got onto Secret Avengers, originally we had planned that book as like a noir spy thriller, but as mm-hmm. it went, it became this absurdist dark comedy. And I think that Marvel recognized that I did the comedy pretty well. Um, and comedy right. is a thing that's actually similar to horror in terms of storytelling. What you're doing is you're building a rhythm, you're uh, setting a stage for a punchline, right? So with comedy, right. that punchline is like, an absurdist or surrealist image or beat that makes the reader giggle, laugh, smile, whatever. 
But with horror, it's a beat where you're trying to frighten the reader or disturb them. So it's it's a similar rhythm of building up sure. tension and then releasing it. So it, it's like two similar skill sets, actually. And so wow. I, I think that why I'm a somewhat capable horror artist uh, is why I'm a somewhat capable comedic artist because they use some of the same tricks. And so Marvel saw that I could do comedy well and put me on uh, worst X-Men ever and Hank Johnson and Rocket Raccoon. And I started doing a little bit more of the comedic action side of things. Um, And I veered away from horror specifically because of the books that I was being offered. Um, And then, you know, Hawkeye was kind of a similar idea. It was a little bit more, um, David Aha, Leo Romero style, like comedy action. Right. Um, and then Vision kind of went back into the horror style a little bit. Yeah, I think yeah. you can see a lot of my horror influences creep through there. And then yeah. I started it on the Star Wars stuff. And I think I was a good fit for Star Wars because I had done X-Files. I had done the right. likenesses before. I knew what it was like working for, working on a book that it was an adaptation. And there was like another third party of editorial that you needed to consider so I, I had that kind of experience already, and then uh, I could bring those lessons into Star Wars, and I did Star Wars for a while. So, um, but like after that, like I said, I was like, I want to be doing the horror stuff, and I haven't really had an opportunity to do it. I remember even on my early podcasts eight eight or nine years ago when I started on Secret Avengers, I'd be saying, I, I want to do a horror book. I want to do a horror <laughs> book. I had to say it for ten years before it freaking happened. But, um, but I think that's also a lesson in that people aren't going to offer you the books that you want to do all the time. And if you really have a desire to draw a specific kind of thing, you kind of just have to make it happen for yourself. Yeah. Um, Which was kind of the the hard lesson of that one. And now it's like, if I go back to, I'm sure inevitably I will do more stuff at Marvel and DC. And I think that it'll be nice because I will be more known for the stuff that I've done over the last year. And that'll be the stuff that I'm, yeah, uh, dr- the kind of genre that I'm drawing at those companies. I already had, you know, an offer for a work for hire thing over the last few months that was a horror thing, and that was specifically because of the announcement of Silver Coin, right? Like you have sure. to draw the books that you want to draw in the future, or you're just going to be offered stuff that you're not huge on. Um, right. And I, and not saying that I'm not big on comedy or dark comedy comics. I think I just sure. got a little bit burnt out on them after a while. And um, yeah, editors' memories are are pretty short. So, mm-hmm. you know, they forgot that I'd done come back or they'd never even read it. You know, they'd read the stuff that right. I'd done for the past two or three years. And that was what they thought of me as the, that that was the type of artist that they they thought of me. And those are the kind of books that they thought that I would work on. So you yeah. have to actively remind people what you enjoy drawing and are good at drawing. So that's a little tidbit totally. of advice, I guess. Yeah. No, yeah. And, and there, there's like, there's a part of me that wants to sort of be, you know, like bemoan the like, Ugh, editors are uncreative, and they don't, you know, like, they can only judge what they see. But like, you know, I, I think also to be fair to them, like, it is a very fast paced industry that doesn't have a lot of time for like thinking about decisions or like really exploring like, okay, how do I cast this book, right? Like, there, there's not a lot of spare time lying around as a, as a comic book editor. So it's like, yeah, they just kind of go off of like what they're seeing currently from your work. And, and like 100%. you're saying, yeah, you kind of have to, you have to force their perspective on you to shift by sort of yes. doing, you know, like making things your own. And that's to- and like, like you said, that's totally not on them. Editors are often reading. 50 comic books a week just yep. of their publisher at the big two to try and like figure out everything that's going on. So right. you know, when you're reading 
quite literally hundreds of single issues of comics in a month. You're not going to remember what you read like half of like six months ago. How could you remember? I couldn't remember. I don't have the, the yeah. storage, the mental capacity to, to, <laughs> yeah. to, to go beyond that. Right. So totally, I totally. can barely remember what I ate for breakfast yesterday. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for, for sleep stories, I'm, I'm, I've, I've really, really liked, uh, uh, this, this book. It was such an interesting, um, type of like collection of short stories and, and the, like the, the way that you were using, you know, the sort of value contrast as color I found to be particularly fascinating, but, uh, tell me about where sleep stories came from and what kind of made you decide to do a book in this format and sort of, you know, like Kickstarter, all that stuff. Yeah. Sleep stories is a funny one. Cause it was a, it kind of just happened. It all just happened. So <laughs> I have always had nightmares. I, I've had night terrors since I was a little kid. And I think that just comes from being a creative person. A lot of other creatives that I know with vast imaginations have nightmares. Um, mm-hmm. And I've always had them. I went through some very severe trauma as a kid, which exacerbated the issue uh, of the nightmares. And mm-hmm. they became night terrors. I was sleepwalking. I was having wild, wild dreams. So Wow. You know, I, I think my parents and I had to kind of get that under control and find some ways to um, to soften the terror of the night for me. And so right. I, I it, it's just always something that I've had these these incredibly uh, vivid dreams. Um, and I they kind of, you know, ebb and flow depending on what I'm going through at the time in my life. And I find when I'm like really stressed or overwhelmed that I'll be having a lot of nightmares. I find that um, subconsciously when you go to sleep, your brain is processing a lot. And I think the more intensely you're processing things, the more vivid and occasionally lucid my dreams are personally. But right. yeah, I so I've always had these crazy dreams, some of them recurring, some of them recur now, and, I, and I'm still a little kid in them. And I always thought that they would be interesting as mini comics. And I just never mm-hmm. had the time to really draw them out or to journal them. Uh, and then what happened was I, I was like, silver coin had just been picked up. Um, I was working on a stuff that was, uh, going to be coming out in a year to two years from that point. So this would have been like early to mid 2020. And I was like, I'm not going to have any, anything sequential out for a year. Right. I would like to do some horror stuff to get people prepped for kind of what's coming. And I don't, uh, and I don't really have an avenue to do that. I don't have a time to take on any other work. So I was like, oh, I'm just going to draw a few, a few detail, a few of my dreams for Twitter, essentially, is what I thought in my sure. head. I'll put them on Twitter or Instagram. And I think either the first or the second, I think the first one that I did, I just called it like, you know, sleep stories or something similar. I don't uh-huh. even know if I had that name posted on Twitter. And it went pretty, pretty viral, like low, low end viral. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. They got spread um, around. People were noticing it. People were talking about it. People were noticing it. I thought, yeah. oh, maybe maybe this is something that would actually connect with people. So I did a few more and they just kept snowballing and getting a lot of traction. And I thought, right. well, this is probably not really the best way to read these is to have to like search the hashtag and then to try and scroll and find them. So right. I decided to host them on a website. And they don't take me too long to draw because a lot of them is just like a ton of negative space. They're like one or two page stories and, right. uh, and, and they're really quick, fast reads. It mostly just like gives a little bit of context and then shows you a scary thing. And, right. um, 
and so I was able to knock them out pretty quickly. So I was doing them weekly um, while I was like prepping all my other books and hosting them on uh, on a dedicated site that was just an infinite yeah. scroll. Uh, I, yep. I really like infinite scroll web comics as a reader because I, I don't Same. read a lot of web comics, but when I do, I don't want to be clicking through pages. I just kind of want to either scroll on my phone or on my computer. Um, so I yeah. just kind of, I formatted them in the most simple way possible um, and the easiest to read in my opinion. Right. And, uh, and yeah, they get, it did really well. There was a lot of traction. And then I had a co-op student come in, uh, when, when a lot of the COVID protocols were lifted in my area. Uh, she's a friend of the family and, uh, and she was in the studio every day and we were trying to figure out what would be a good thing for her to do. And I had around 30 pages of, uh, sleep stories at the time. And I thought, you know, so why don't you, why don't you put together a Kickstarter? So, you know, right. I would spend an hour on it every day and then she would spend half the day on it and we, we just did it together. And, and she, she's pretty much the reason the Kickstarter happens. Sophia That's amazing. was, yeah, amazing, intelligent, bright young woman and, uh, incredibly valuable to have her here in the studio working with me every day. And that, that whole project wouldn't have happened without her being here because it wouldn't have given me the little push to give her a little bit of extra work to do. Um, but sure, it was, yeah, sure. that was also an insane learning experience doing a Kickstarter because, you know, people can tell you all day long that a Kickstarter is a lot of work, but until you actually start printing out your books and mailing them everywhere, you have no idea how much work it actually is. It's so much work. Yeah. Um, oh, sure. But yeah, so, so sleep stories is still going. I'm just like the last few weeks, I haven't posted any of them because I've been so, um, over encumbered by the other, uh, work that I'm doing right now, my actual right. paying, paying gigs yeah. that are coming out in comic stores. So I've just been so busy, but I've got, you know, the scripts for the next three or four little sleep stories, uh, on Amazing. the table, ready to draw as soon as I, as my schedule clears just a little bit, but yeah, I, sure, I, sure. I really enjoy doing the sleep stories. And I, it's funny because I think that as I'm drawing these things, I think, Oh, these things are so weird. Nobody has, is going to have a dream like this. And then you know, I'll have a bunch of people say, I had a dream just like this, or I had a dream just like this. And it kind of goes back to the, <laughs> what I was saying before is that, you know, that eat, eating of a hamburger is universal, or, you know, being hungry is universal fear and, right. and having nightmares is a universal feeling. And whether or not someone has a dream of like the big bad wolf coming and trying to like uh -huh. steal them away from their house. Um, I think people all have felt abandonment and have felt loneliness and i think that a lot of nightmares are just those feelings and then exacerbated and res uh, represented in a, in a different kind of way right that makes a lot of sense yeah yeah, yeah. It, it feels very like i i personally forget most of my dreams you know like i, mm -hmm. I my girlfriend will tell me like you were kicking like crazy in your sleep and stuff like that and i have no memory of anything that was happening uh, uh but it does they feel so visceral and so relatable even as someone who like does not you know really remember and when i do remember my dreams they're very like you know they'll be like terrifying but very close to life right like right. it's like i hurt someone's feelings type thing you know like that kind of stuff where it's like yeah. not very extreme but like feels really intense um um but yeah I, it, they 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 strike me very hard even as someone who doesn't have vivid dreams so i think that there's there's something you're tapping into there that's really awesome yeah, um, I feel I feel bad for my partner because she has to deal with me waking up screaming all the time. But I think over the years, she's I have like a breathing pattern when I'm going into a nightmare. Uh, and it's mm. an interesting thing, like when people have such vivid night terrors, 
they wake when they first wake up, they're still in a state of dreaming. So I'm kind of like, if if right. I get too deep into it, I'm kind of half awake and still seeing things from the dreams and they're mixing a bit with reality. So she's kind of able to catch me. She's a very light sleeper as I'm uh-huh. kind of building towards um, the deepest ab- abscesses of my mind. And uh, right. so like my breathing will become a little bit frantic and then I'll start talking and then I'll start screaming. And if she wakes up while I'm, while I, my breathing is becoming erratic, she's able to kind of wake me out of it before. So we've kind of found a nice balance <laughs> where she doesn't have to wake up to a, a mad screaming half naked man in the bedroom as right. often anymore, which is that, probably hey, good. <laughs> always a good thing yeah yeah, yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so and and coming back into the, the silver coin as we as we start to wrap up here but uh uh i want to know as you're getting these scripts from these writers like are how how involved are you in their sort of writing process as they're going are they like sending you outlines or pitches as they're going along that you're sort of like approving and sending them to the next stage or how is that kind of structuring yeah it was kind of Interesting because I think I mentioned before, we've been talking for a while, so I can't even remember what we were talking about <laughs> at the beginning of this podcast, but uh, I, I just prompted them essentially, first of all, with the idea that there's a right. silver coin uh, when people come into possession of it um, or when it comes into people's possession, awful, evil things happen. They can mm-hmm. be supernatural. They don't have to be is essentially how I prompted them. And then right. each writer just said, Oh, and I said, it can happen at any point in human history from the late 1600s to whenever you want. Um, right. And so each each writer said, well, what do you think about doing it at this point about this thing? And it was very mm-hmm. informal because I know them all already. We already have a, a right. rapport and we've worked together. So, you know, I think Kelly said something like, oh, her issue's not out, so I can't say too much, but... <laughs> I just realized that. So she was like, what about like early nineties, uh, mean girls meets slasher summer camp. And I was like, yeah, that sounds fucking awesome. That is like the most (laughs) Kelly horror thing I could think of. Definitely. And you know, Chip was like, Oh, what about like a late seventies, like rock band, um, (laughs) like disco horror. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was like, okay, that sounds great. Chip. Like that sounds awesome. I'm totally into that. And of course, Ed, who's an eighties kid is like, Oh, I want to do like eighties crime. Yes. That's exactly like something you would do. And then Jeff was the one who did something very unexpected actually. And I don't want to wow. say, I mean, I guess it's going to be solicited soon. So it's going to be set in the solicits, but uh, there's a very large time jump in Jeff's issue. And it is a very Cronenberg. This, uh, marriage of tech horror and uh body horror it's very not what i expected from jeff which made me really excited to draw it and then uh so he he i think he just said cyberpunk witches and i was like yeah sure let's go that sounds good to me (laughs) and then so what happened was as oh yeah and then my issue i kind of already knew before i even asked people what i wanted my issue to be um because my issue is kind of a big mythology issue and it and it explains a lot about the world and um interesting and as the artist and and like quarterback of the project i was able to introduce little easter eggs in each issue that weren't even in the script and i would just run those by people and be like this is going to pay off down the road and just tell them kind of my plans for it you know so 
um, I had my hands on everything a little bit. And I think what happened cool. was as the, as Chip's script came in and Kelly's script came in, I gave those to uh, Jeff and Ed and I said, oh, here's the first scripts. And then they tied in things from those scripts into their scripts as well. So you see, wow. you see a lot of crossover and it's, uh, in ho- and yeah, I, I think there's going to be lots of payoffs. I think people are really going to enjoy it, but yeah. I enjoy it as a reader. <clears throat> no, that's awesome. Just, yeah. What, what I try and think of it like is like, if this was drawn by somebody whose art I loved, would I, would I like this book? Would I read this book? And I'm right. unequivocally is it's a yes for me. So I, I have Amazing. to think that that means it's, it's a success in some way. Yeah. And it's, it sounds like there was a lot of playing in the sandbox, right? Which is like, it's, it was a term that I, I hear like Vince Gill- Gilligan and other TV writers throwing around a lot where it's like, there's a lot of sort of stuff in the beginning that's set up. And then from that point, you're kind of calling back to that stuff and bringing that stuff back around and bringing those, those, you know, chickens to roost or whatever, as much as you can to sort of, you know, make it all feel as, as part of a whole and feel satisfactory in its own um, um, world and mythology. So it's really interesting. Yeah. That you were all kind of able to build off of each other's momentum that way. Yeah. It was um, fun. And I think everybody got along really well. So it was easy to do that. No one felt like any toes were being stepped on. I think, I think everyone essentially knew each other, um, yeah. beforehand, you know, uh, Jeff, and chip and ed are all canadians and jeff mm-hmm. and chip are both toronto guys so um yeah everyone kind of like knew each other a little bit already so it was it was really fun it was like it feels like we're oh god i was gonna say it it feels like a bit like we're like this family that put this book together but i uh-huh. it's been blowing up lately all over um all over social media, like whenever, you know, a boss or an editor says you're part of the family. Now you run screaming because it's, <laughs> it's like this kind of terminology Manipulation. That manipulates you into feeling attached to a company. And then they're yep. able to kind of fuck with you a little bit, but a little I don't, team, this maybe. isn't a company. We're like, we're, we're like a, a team. Um, and, and, and I'm not a company that's like trying to manipulate them. Like we are friends right. and uh, it yeah. feels like we've created a special thing together that we all have ownership of. Um, right. So, yeah. Totally. Totally. Uh, which issue to you is the most challenging to draw? Oh, Jeff's a hundred percent. It's wow. not even close. Uh, <laughs> Because Jeff, like I had to learn how to draw a lot of new things for Jeff's and we did kind right. of like a, a Marvel style script. Um, so it was like a pretty open script and I was second guessing a lot of my own decisions. And uh, yeah, and it was, uh, there's a lot of stuff that I've never drawn or haven't drawn in a long time in there. So I had to kind of like learn a few new things. I think the first three yeah. issues were all, all, all of them were already in my wheelhouse. But uh, but Jeff's issue is something totally new um, wow. to my to my artistic experience. <laughs> Amazing. W- w- were there any specific things that you were pulling reference from as you're trying to like tackle these problems? Yes, I would say um, Tetsuo, uh, mm-hmm. the Iron Man or the mm-hmm. which one was the first one? Is it the Iron Man or the Bullet Man? I think Iron Man Ooh, is the first good one. Good question. Tetsuo, I, the Iron Man right. is like this weird, super lo- low budget um horror film that mixes up like factory tech cyberpunk horror with this weird lo-fi black and white uh cinematography and stop motion effects it's really cool and visually i i did pull a lot from that um for jeff's issue uh what else i watched um a bunch of slasher movies like i tried to 
watch movies within the subgenre that each issue was was in to make sure that I wasn't um, like cribbing too much from those movies. Cause I think that there's some mm-hmm. things like uh, in movies like Friday the, th- the 13th that are such a part of the, the collective unconscious that you might reference them without even knowing. So I think right. that it's a good thing to make sure that you go and absorb those, those, uh, those movies or films or, or books if you're going to be mm-hmm. working in that genre, just to make sure that you're not like just doing exactly what they did. And you're kind of carving out your own path. And then it was right, fun. Right. Like I did a little bit of homages in certain scenes to those things as well for fans of them and oh, they yeah. can catch them. But That's I think cool. an homage is different from, from just like copying the way that something is done. You know, there's a loving yep. way to pay uh, reverence to something without stepping on its toes. And I totally. think, you know, watching some of those movies and, and TV shows uh, gives you access to those techniques. Yeah, um, that makes but sense. But yeah, so I, yeah, like uh, some of the slasher movies, the 90s slasher movies I was watching when I was drawing Kelly's. Uh, I'm trying to remember what I was watching when I was drawing Chips. <sighs> I, you know what? I was watching like uh, Get Out and Us a lot when I drew oh, Chips. Oh, yeah. Even though it's Chips is pretty different from those things, I think sure. it has the same feeling of this like, slow burn big payoff horror um, yeah like a kind of like a climat like that sort of becomes like a thriller like while still playing in horror like it's suspenseful and then it becomes kind of a thriller like crescendos in this really explosive way yeah that makes and a lot of sense ed's i was watching a few like 80s teen movies actually so like river's edge was something that i watched for ed's and then mm-hmm. uh yeah and then Akira is something right. that I was watching for Jeff's as well. Oh, sure. Uh, some more manga influenced stuff was happening with Jeff's, strangely mm-hmm. enough. And Another then, Tetsuo uh, related story, if you will. Yeah, yeah, Tetsuo. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then for mine, I don't want to say too much, but I sure. was like watching hey. a lot of period pieces, I guess, from okay. uh, from like early 1700s, late 1600s, to get a good a good grasp on style and clothing and stuff. Very interesting. Okay. Well, that that's yeah. a hell of a tease if I've ever heard one. Um, as we as we wrap up here, I'm just going to ask you a few lightning round questions. You can give one word answers, you know, sort of whatever whatever uh, comes to mind first. Okay. Um, first, do you do you listen to anything when you work and what do you listen to? Yes, I kind of mix it up. I go through phases, but um, a lot of times I'm listening to audiobooks. Recently, I listened mm-hmm. to an audiobook called The Keep, which was really cool. Okay. It's about... Um, it's really interesting, actually. It's like a World War II uh, Dracula story where there's this castle and uh, German military and Nazis are occupying it. And mm-hmm. some supernatural shit starts happening and it gets into like <laughs> this whole new vampire style mythology. It was really fun. I really enjoyed oh, it. Yeah. So that was like a more recent thing. And then, uh, yeah, I listened to a lot of music. Uh, I, I'm really into the new Jimily album. Um, mm. Yeah, he's cool. It's like a, it's got it's like a funky indie r&b mixed with suffing stevens somehow Ooh, yeah it's interesting good. I enjoy that, that one a lot yeah um do you tend to uh, uh get really detailed and thorough with your pencils and then strip away the detail in the inks or do you pencil loose and tighten up with inks uh i pencil loose if i'm digitally inking and pencil a bit tighter when i'm traditionally inking Ooh, interesting uh which software do you use as as uh you know drawing and coloring photoshop Photoshop. All right. Um, any specific favorite pencils, pens, brushes, whatever. I used to swear by Winsor Newton series seven, but I've more mm. recently made the 
jump to Raphael brushes, the eight mm. eight three oh three. I think they're is the they're like the orange <laughs> bottom uh, Raphael eight four oh four eight four oh four Raphael brushes. I find that uh, they might not have as fine of, of a tip as the mm-hmm. Windsor Newton, but they have a lot more bounce and stiffness to them, which I really Ooh. like. So um, yeah. they don't like flare out as much i really like them mm-hmm. the Raphael brushes i find them um easier to control i think than a lot of other brushes they're a little bit expensive they're around the sure. same price point as the windsor newton stuff but yeah so i like Raphael yeah. brushes a lot and then i actually really like rapidograph ink it's not the oh. most uh opaque but there's like rapidograph rapidograph drawing ink and it's a little bit more fluid but i actually like a more fluid ink because i find i'm able to pull and push my lines around a little bit easier right that makes sense. And then on um, um, on on Photoshop, I use mostly Kyle Webster's brushes, and I really sure. like the Fountainia brush. Ooh, yeah. I don't know if I've used that one. Um, uh, what's the longest part? Of, like, which which phase of your artistic process takes the longest usually? Um, Roughs, pencils, inks, color. Probably pencils takes the longest. Yeah. I would say pencils or inks. I would say I would say eighty percent of the time pencils take the longest, but occasionally I'll get a page that I have to ink that just takes forever because there's either a lot of detail or something's not coming together. But, but usually I would say pencils is the fastest part of the process or I sorry, the slowest part of the process. Sure. Uh, would you, would you do another series, uh, uh, that is an artist driven anthology like the silver coin? I don't know. <laughs> Good enough. I, I, it's, it's hard to say. Um, silver coin has been so successful and, I'll say this. I will say if I'm going, if I were to do another artist-driven anthology series, it wouldn't be for a few years, at, at the that very least. It would, it would be yeah. a little bit. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's a lot to handle. Uh, uh, yeah, do you prefer, it's a lot. Yeah. Do you prefer denser or lighter scripts? Lighter scripts. Interesting. Lighter gives scripts, you more room but not completely open. Like I don't need a lot of description, but I still, I still like to have the dialogue if possible. And uh-huh. I like to have a panel count per page, <clears throat> but uh, I don't need each description of each panel to be a, an absurd amount of length. Like I, I don't, I, I think when, when panel descriptions get too dense, then you have to kind of puzzle out what's important to show or not, because the more dense the panel, the more things you're going to have to cut from it, frankly. Right. That makes a lot of sense. There's not as um, much problem solving when there's less, less written there. Yeah, that that yeah, it gives you kind of room to connect your own dots and kind of tackle it the way you do, rather than be tied down to a to a specific set of instructions. Yeah. Um, what what types of genres are you playing in now, sort of going forward from from Silver Coin? Are you still doing more more horror? Yeah, uh, I'm doing oh, yeah. pretty much horror, and my other favorite genre as a as a reader and a consumer um, of all um, storytelling is uh, mm-hmm. escapist fantasy. Like Ooh. Chronicles of Narnia, Spirited right. Away, um, The Neverending Story. That's one of my favorite genres. So I'm currently, oh, yeah. I can't say much about it or even who's publishing it, but I'm currently writing <laughs> and drawing a 120-page uh, middle-grade uh, escapist fantasy graphic novel as well. That's incredible. That, that yeah, makes me really excited. I love that segment of comics right now. It's a totally different style than Silver Coin. I mean, all of my storytelling is still similar because I don't sure. think that the way that I tell a story needed to change a lot, but the way that I'm cartooning is a little different. 
And I think mm-hmm. it's a little bit more stripped down. And obviously, it's a it's a middle grade book, so it's not going to be too scary. But I can't help yeah. but do little bit of scary <laughs> things in it. But um, yeah, I'm really excited for that. It's a totally different thing than what I've been uh, what I've been doing for the last ten years. I don't think I've ever drawn anything like this at all. And it's a very wow. personal story, close to my heart. Um, and I'm excited to be writing and drawing my first uh, graphic novel. That's amazing. Michael Walsh really showing off his range here, ladies and gentlemen, just just trying to, to prove something to all of us. Uh, uh, that's incredible. And I'm excited for that. Uh, Michael, let all the listeners know where they can find you, what they can look out for, you know, pre-orders, all that stuff. What, what should people be looking at? So go out to your store on April 7th and buy as many copies of the first issue of Silvercoin <laughs> as you can afford. Put my potential future children through college please um, yeah. yeah we've been working on it for a long time so uh i've been completely invested in it for for you know about a year now and i'm hoping mm-hmm. that uh, people enjoy it and go out to the stores and they buy it and help support mm-hmm. creators doing their own thing it's a creator owned book so you know what i what me and the rest of the team make on this is directly reflected by the amount of people that buy it from from the stores and uh, the oh, more yeah. people that buy it the more likely it is that there will be more um, after the first five issues, uh, but, uh, yeah, so, so, so check out silver coin in your stores coming the first issue, April 7th, go to the sleep to read my web comic about my awful, horrible nightmares where there's monsters mm. and werewolves and, and everything else fun. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you can find me on social media at Mr. Underscore Walsh on Twitter and on Instagram. And then if you're looking for some of my more recent work for hire work, you can check out Black Hammer Justice League that I did with Jeff Lemire at Dark Horse oh, and yeah. DC. It was a book. collaboration between both companies. And then uh, the Eisner winning Vision, you've got the Eisner nominated Hawkeye book that I did with Kelly. And then oh, you've yeah. got Secret Avengers. Um, you've got, uh, what else? Uh, Star Wars, The Last Jedi adaptation. And then my early creator owned work would be Comeback and Zero. Um, so, Amazing. so there's a lot of, a lot of stuff to check out over the years. It's a it's a wide ranging and amazing body of work, and uh, you'll certainly enjoy reading it as I did in prep for this interview and and in years prior. Uh, uh, Michael, the last question that we have for everybody who joins the show is, why do you love comics? Because there is no monetary budget on what you're able to do as a creator. I love comics because if I can think of a thing, then I can put it onto a paper and make it happen, and that can't. That doesn't exist in any other way, any any other form of telling a story. The only thing holding me back is my own capability. <laughs> Michael Walsh, thank you for joining the show. <laughs> And thank you once more to Michael for joining the show. Make sure to follow him at Mr. Underscore Walsh and make sure to go and pick up the silver coin in stores now. Uh, If you're loving that issue, pre-order the future ones from your comic book store. It helps so tremendously. I want to give another thank you to Sean Rosner for the music in the show. You can follow him at Sean D. Rosner on Instagram. Thanks to Garm for sponsoring the show and thank you all for listening. Thank you for the reviews. Thank you for the ratings. Thank you for the shares on Twitter and on Instagram. Um, I I logged back into the Twitter account the other day and found a ton of mentions from people out there, which was incredible. I'm really, really uh, excited that people are 
digging the show, sharing it with, you know, with their friends and, and followers and whoever, um, and just getting the word out there. Because again, I love making the show. I love talking to these creators. Uh, and I love sharing whatever things that they share and whatever things I learn with uh, everybody out there. Because uh, we're just a, a, a bunch of baby fish in the ocean trying to find our way and learn how to swim. Um, so it's nice when like, you know, we can, I don't know, I, the metaphor is falling apart. I was going to say like, you know, find a school, another school of fish to swim alongside i guess that works um but truly i appreciate it so much uh and if you haven't left a rating or a review yet on your podcast app of choice please 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 do so it means so much it's incredible to see anytime i see them um it it lifts my spirits and also uh helps put the show on the map of other people who are searching for content like this which i know you know everyone listening has been the same place that i have been multiple times before where it's like i really like this creator's work let me search their name. Let me see what interviews they've done. Let me see if I can learn anything more about how they approach it, you know, or just like searching for like comic book creator interviews or however you found the show. Um, you know, those ratings and reviews uh, help other people like yourselves find the show. People who, you know, might not have dug as deep into the, into the, you know, marketplaces and, and libraries or whatever uh, to find it as you did. And I greatly appreciate uh, everyone who has done that. Um, so again, thanks for all the love. Um, and it means means so much to me um without further ado that is I, I i've said without further ado so much in the intros and outros lately uh let's let's i'm gonna make a challenge to myself to like not say that phrase for like a month um so let's you can all keep track if i do that actually but thank you for listening and uh see you on the other side Might be cool.com. You never know.